What do you mean by is zero trust? Explicit, explicit, explicit. The identity, the device, and the network adopts zero trust. You will only be allowed to do one thing that you're paid to do, only one thing. And you don't, you no longer have the ability to go everywhere. Not only are there nation states, not only are there domestic terrorists, but there's also the insider threat. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation, and welcome back to another great episode. Today, I have for you David Kajigal, who is the former CIO for the state of Wisconsin and Zscaler Executive Advisor. His experience includes information technology, visioning, and strategic planning and management. He's experienced in converging business strategies with ever-changing and innovating information technologies. Also, by the way, he was actually appointed to the CIO, CIO role in Wisconsin by both Republican and Democrat administrations. Now, Zscaler, in case you're not familiar with it, enables the world's leading organizations to securely transform their networks and applications for a mobile and cloud-first world. Zscaler services are 100% cloud-delivered and offer the simplicity, enhanced security, and improved user experience that traditional appliances or hybrid solutions are just unable to match. Now they're used in more than 185 countries, and Zscaler operates the world's largest cloud security platform, protecting thousands of enterprises and government agencies from cyber attacks and data loss. David, welcome to lead the team, sir. Thank you. Good to be here. So one of the interesting things that immediately jumps out at me is you are one of the probably small percentage of leaders who has made the big transition from the public sector okay, into the private sector. What's that been like? Uh, that is a... Uh... A dramatic change in, in uh, thinking uh, was something that helped me was to uh, be a CIO for a utility. It's a regulated utility, Line, uh, line Energy in Wisconsin, I, I, almost six years there. And uh, they had a, a different view of capital expense and operating expense. Hmm. And, I, and I became familiar with a regulated environment. Uh, that helped me understand uh, as I went into the state uh, position working for government. Uh, how things are different, uh, financially speaking, and from an accountability point of view. Uh, the mantra in the, in the state of Wisconsin was to serve every single Wisconsinite as a taxpayer and that we use their taxpayer dollars wisely. On the private sector, it's P&L. It's uh, serving the customer and, and profit is king. Uh, the board's decision on driving profitability is paramount quarterly earnings, et cetera, et cetera. So the difference between earning a profit and serving a customer are the biggest differences between the two uh, two sectors. So speaking to our audience today, there are a lot of leaders out there working government sector. Would you recommend that they make the jump into the private or stick with the public as long as possible? I would, uh, 
I, I'd enjoyed the private sector is very challenging and, and the balancing between customer service and profitability. Uh, my heart is still in, in the private sector, but uh, I can tell you, uh, frankly, and absolutely, uh, the capstone of my career working for the government was the best decision I made, working shoulder to shoulder with state employees who have, are service minded and have uh, the, their uh, their concerns around the taxpayer at hand and for, foremost on their mind. I, I would like to say that uh, everyone should work a stint in government, whether it's early in their career or whether it's at the end of their career as it, as it was for me at retirement, to understand how this country is governed, understand how taxpayer dollars are being spent and understand the issues and the decision-making uh, that are folded into a, a, a finely tuned operation. Uh, and sometimes, um, should I say, contaminated with politics, but at the end of the day, uh, the decisions do uh, come to the forefront for the best of all. So it sounds like you recommend it almost from a more noble cause perspective. Understand your government, and yeah, and you didn't say give back a little bit, but it but it sounds like that might be part of it. I think so. I, th I think uh, everyone needs to understand that uh, you go to work every day in the private sector, and you're you've got a job, and you're working nine to five, if not longer hours. Uh, for a mission in a purpose of the business uh, strategy. But the context and the environment that allows you to do that is government regulations. And how are those government regulations uh, created and for what purpose? Uh, they're a measure of protection. They're a safety net. Uh, you have to understand the infrastructure of this country. While it is operated by the private sector, it's regulated by government. Is it easier to navigate bureaucracy and red tape working in the government institution or in the private? <laughs> it's, it's a much, it's a much uh, difficult challenge in the, in the public sector and government. Very difficult. Uh, I think most people uh, eventually figure out how to do it in the private sector and are, are very good at doing it. But uh, in, the, in government, there is no continuity. People get elected for two-year terms and four-year terms and sometimes are, uh, uh, you know, are here today and gone tomorrow. So in private sector, the continuity is a little bit longer and predictable. In the government sector, it is who you are working with today. So you, uh, you know, in, in your intro, I mentioned you were appointed by, by both Democratic and Republican um, parties. Or I guess you uh, by, by the leader. So, so, so the administration changed in the state of Wisconsin and they appointed you both. What was the key uh, for you? Or what do you deem to be sort of like a success strategy? So, uh, that. so let me just underscore the, the importance of that message there is that it's very, very rare that the preceding uh, appointments are taking on into the uh, succeeding uh, administration. In my case, I worked with mm -hmm. Governor Walker in Wisconsin as a Republican organization. And I did very well. I, I uh, delivered as I, on our promises. Uh, we had very uh, strong successes. Uh, we, uh, we did very well in spending yes. taxpayer dollars and, yep. and creating a surplus. And if you look at the 50 CIOs from each one of the states, many of them work one year, two years, maybe three. I was there eight years. And I was there because I was doing my job and I was delivering on my promises. When, the, when Governor Walker lost the election, uh, the Democrats came in and everybody uh, that was appointed by the Republican administration was asked to leave. 
including me. And then uh, upon further thought, they thought that uh, the continuity of IT and the services that are being delivered uh, based on my reputation and my promises, uh, they kept me on. And oh, by the way, I did know Governor Evers uh, before uh, uh, Governor Walker in a, in a prior uh, engagement. So I was a known commodity, uh, okay. but like I said, there's just a handful of the 50 CIOs that have survived uh, those appointments from, from the governor's office. Uh, if you think about it, the 50 CIOs in this country touch every single citizen and resident in some way or another, whether it's the DOT, the DMV, the taxes, uh, every one of the citizens are touched by a CIO's uh, ability to deliver on, on services and products. Well, so what, take me back to election night. Uh, so the, the governor who appointed you and you had success, he, he doesn't win a second term. And you're sitting at home and what goes through your mind? Well, I, I, I absolutely, I was leaving. I, all, all appointees, all appointees, the, uh, the governor, the secretaries, the deputies, the administrators, uh, about 400 people is given it's given that you, you, your, your, yes. your term has ended. And yes. then uh, a couple of days later, uh, Governor Evers, uh, through his channels, advised me that I was staying on. And I was maybe a handful of people that were able to stay on from the administration. Uh, so it, it, so if, I'm, if I'm sort of, in, sort of reading between the lines here, the election ends, you feel like, hey, I gotta, I'm going to go do something else now because it's over. And it's some people I think, well, you know, maybe, maybe David got on the phone and started calling people, trying to connect with the new, uh, newly elected governor, but it sounds like that wasn't at all what you did. You were able to rely on the work you'd done and the positive relationships you had built. And it just all sort of worked out based upon that. More, more so the latter. I did not call anyone. Uh, if anyone called me, I, I gave them the the, uh, the responses that uh, I could build upon. I, I brought together all the data centers from the agencies. I implemented an ERP, enterprise resource planning. I uh, established broadband into the rural communities. We had significant accomplishments during my tenure with Governor Walker. And uh, I, one day I walked in and uh, the the uh, Governor Evers' administration told me that I was going to be retained and 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 keep keep my job. So did you? So a lot of those accomplishments that you just mentioned are, are huge. But how do you? How were you thinking about voicing those so the governor knew what you were doing, knew about the wins, and also how did you think about sharing that with the rest of the state? Because to me, those are important uh, victories but they can get lost in the, in the big scheme of things. The, the three that I mentioned are huge. They affect every single citizen and state employee every single day. The way we operate our data centers, the way we pay our vendors and, and pay our people and book our financials, yeah. every single day they're touched by these innovations and these technology deployments. I didn't have to speak to them. Uh, because they they are the, the the tap water coming out of the faucet. They are the the the, the breathing that we do every day, uh, not only for the employees but for the citizens of the state. Five point eight million citizens in the state of Wisconsin are touched by all these accomplishments. How, how did you make sure the governor understood it? Because the governor is not a CIO. I mean, they're they're 
you know, they're politicians by nature. I mean, some do have business backgrounds, you know, but I, you know, here you are, we, what's the key to translating a bunch of cyber achievements the, the, to, to a politician so they can just, speak to the If you could just think about, think about the number of transactions are processed every single day. How many people walk up to a DNB counter? How many, how many people are paying okay. their taxes? How many people are picking up their phone or, or connecting to a computer and, and having the, the broadband services delivered to 760 state offices in the, in the state of Wisconsin? I don't have to speak to that. It's the fact that they, the government works and that people are being serviced and they have, they have the ability to look strategically and build upon that foundation. That's, I think, uh, what everyone recognized. And I didn't need to tell anybody and I didn't need to lobby and, and underscore the importance of these things. They, they were fundamental to a day-to-day operation in state government. Well, to me, you seem to have a knack for translating cyber stuff into an understandable way because you said tap water, right? Yeah. I didn't expect we'd be talking about tap water today, right? <laughs> when, I, when I'm on with the CIA from, uh, from Wisconsin. So I think that that's a message for leaders, whether in the, in the, in, in the government agency world, or if they're in the private sector, take your job, take your team, and you've got to be able to translate it into something meaningful. Uh, because- that, that, that's absolutely true. I learned that uh, years ago, if not decades ago, do not use the IT vernacular when you're speaking to business people. Talk about things that they, they deal with every single day, the tap water, the electricity uh, coming out of the lights, the, the ability to conduct a Zoom session because you've got power and, and a computerized network. Uh, enjoy the business vernacular and just leave the, uh, the, the, the computer language, if you will, to your staff. <laughs> nice. And, leave and, it to the staff. But can, and I have I have to be two people. I have to be able to speak to the, the business vernacular. And then I got to turn around and demonstrate the confidence in my IT leadership that I know what I'm talking about. We talk about local area networks and VLANs and cybersecurity attacks, all that. Uh, I, I have to have the confidence in my staff to be able to lead them while I talk to the governor's office or to a boardroom about the issues that they should be thinking about. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. All right, so let's go there. First of all, I love that response. Before we get into the next segment, that's the key takeaway for leaders here. Um, cause if you talk ERP, you know, within your group and your enterprise, you'll get high fives and like, oh yeah, I know SAP or I know Oracle, but you know, the, the governor of the state can't stand up in front of his constituents or her constituents and start talking about ERP systems because the average person does not care, but they care about tap water. They care about the DMV line. You know, they care about these things. And so may, I think this is a great, a great episode from that standpoint already, you know, making that translation. And it's obviously worked out across multiple administrations for you. Uh, so need to know your audience, know your audience, know your audience. Now, segueing into cloud world now, now a lot of listeners are like, okay, okay. I, you know, I know the cloud, but we're talking about a bigger scale. So the cloud to me is, is a wonderful tool. Uh, 
But when you realize state agencies, agencies, public agencies, companies, individual citizens are basically just uploading their personal pictures and their data, and they're giving it to a third party into cyberspace, it starts to bring up some, some concerns, perhaps. What do you think leaders need most? I mean, they could be worried about a lot of things here, uh, but what do they most need to be concerned with right now? I believe uh, strongly, and, and this is why I'm a CXO advisor to Zscaler, and I've transitioned from being a state CIO to being a CXO in the cybersecurity space. You have to look at this through multiple dimensions. The country, the world will continue to leverage technologies across the board, whether it's an IoT sensor, whether it's a credit card swipe, whether what it, uh, your, um, your Alexa, uh, your, your Google um, uh, box, everything is being automated. So in doing, in being able to leverage that from either a cost reduction or productivity point of view, you need to keep in mind the security and the privacy of the data. The data is a crown jewel of what you're, what you're transpiring after every transaction, whether it's a voice, whether it's a Zoom, or whether it's a financial transaction, there is a piece of data left over. And that data is sitting somewhere and that needs to be protected on-premise or in the cloud. And you need to, be understand, you need to understand who owns the data and who's responsible for for protecting it and keeping it, whether it's a private sector or whether it's a public sector. Uh, but it is something that we have to understand in the inter interdependence of what we're doing today in technologies. COVID shone a light on supply chains and supply chains before COVID were running pretty smoothly. But after COVID, for some reason, they've been disrupted and they could no longer deliver. These, these cars that, are, sure. that they're making right now are short on chips. And uh, why are they short on chips today and they weren't yesterday? Anyway, we have to deal with that. So in looking at cybersecurity, it's multidimensional. You need to be talking to them from the business vernacular. What happens if you lose the data and what will that cost you? And you talk to the IT people, what happens if you're breached and you're attacked? How are you going to respond to the incident? So there's different audiences, again, that yep. have to look at the cybersecurity. So let me start at the top. There are 16 critical infrastructure key resource sectors defined by DHS, Department of Homeland Security, and CISA, the uh, Security Infrastructure Security Agency. That, those, that uh, second organization is part of DHS. They've enumerated 16 sectors, and, no, and one of them at the top is the energy sector, the power. Sure. The other, the other that's, 15, a, that's a nasty one because that's – Energy, so follow that bunny trail. So an energy company that's supplying, say, the grid of a, to a state. How are they up? How are they using the cloud right now? Like in general, what, 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 how does how does energy sector in a state? Ben, you're 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 touching a, an area that is hard to understand. So let me let me try to do this. And I was fortunate that I worked for a utility before state government, so I'm very familiar with power generation. And as I was about to say, mm -hmm. of the 16, the 15 others don't matter if you lose power. Oh. So that, that is something that you got to walk away with. Of the 16, focus on the energy sector. So let me answer your question. 
the, the flip-flop that I encountered immediately working in, in energy sector is that capital expense is, um, is helpful and is considered uh, to be the attention. Operating expense is bad. They do not want to incur operating expense because the Public Service Commission will reimburse every single capital dollar. They will not reimburse operating expenses. So it's a long way of getting to, to your question here. Okay. Working in the cloud is subscription-based. You pay monthly. That's operating expense. The utility sectors avoid operating expenses, avoid subscriptions, avoid the cloud. Interesting. So, that, so the, in the last couple of years, they're turning the corner on that. And the public service commissions are beginning to understand the value of the cloud. It's much more economical for them to operate in the cloud, but it needs to be secured. The cloud, in some cases, have proven that they're more secure than privately held data centers on premise. So cloud processing has, has, has gone to a, a level of proficiency and a level of protection that no one questions it anymore yeah. if it's the big cloud. So let's let's back this up. Some people might be saying, "I'll, I'll upload my, my my photos to the cloud." Where is the cloud? Just <laughs> explain the cloud. Okay. Uh, it, before somebody invented that term, the cloud, there were outsourcing contracts, and what what the company A did is they contracted with an outsourcing data center in in uh, company B. So mm-hmm. the cloud is nothing more than an outsourced data center sitting somewhere. It's got an address. There's, no, there's nothing um, uh, mythical about this. There's nothing mysterious about it. The cloud is a physical address. It's somebody else's data center. And they're in charge of managing the security of it. That's correct. Managing the, uh, the backups. Yes. Managing the serviceability. And they, and they charge you a monthly fee for that. When, you, when someone uploads their photos on their phone, or uh, to, for Apple, or they do it for uh, one uh, uh, with, well, with Microsoft OneDrive. Those companies typically own the locations where they have their servers, where the cloud sits. Correct? correct. Or are they, are they outsourcing to third parties as well? Uh, they, they may they, be, but the, the, the big ones are AWS, Amazon. Yeah, Amazon, AWS. Yeah. Yeah, AWS and Google and IBM yep. and Microsoft, uh, they all have large data centers. Those big guys typically do not outsource. They, they, they own those data centers. They own the property, they own, they own the okay. building, they own the heating and air conditioning, they buy the equipment. When I was aggregating the data center in the state of Wisconsin, I had to buy all the servers. I had to pay for the power, the air conditioning on premise. That's what I had to do. But if okay. I move that to the cloud, that becomes their responsibility. A customer of the cloud does, does not buy anything, does not buy anything. It's, it's the tap water coming out of the, uh, out of the cloud into your organization that you enjoy. You connect to the cloud rather than connecting to a server on premise. Yeah, to me, as soon as it, uh, your data resides somewhere else, there's a huge risk, right? Because you don't know what they're doing. They say they're doing things, but you don't necessarily know. Exactly. Right. You, you kind of trust the brand. Trust the brand. Exactly. And in most cases, I would say in most cases in those major, major cloud centers, they do a better job of protecting it than your little data center in your company's office. 
sorry, CIOs who have it in their office. Would you know from a statistical standpoint, uh, how, what percentage of organizations more or less have already made that jump to the cloud? The majority? I, I, I could not quote that, uh, but I would say it's significant. Uh, and, and it grows. That's the trend. That's yeah. the trend of moving everything to the cloud and making sure that someone else is securing it. Someone else mm-hmm. is protecting the, the data. And, and, and the big, the big uh, data centers, uh, as we mentioned earlier, are growing leaps and bounds, multiple cities. Uh, they're they're con- continually building uh, out more data centers. And they become, because of network, they mesh them all together as a single entity, although they're multiple addresses in multiple countries. You say that you believe most organizations should move to a quote zero trust to zero trust as they approach and they as they approach the cloud and they modernize. What do you mean by is zero trust? That's a that's a, Ben. I'm glad you brought that up because. Uh, uh, Zscaler was one of the, the first companies to introduce the concept of zero trust. And now it's really been confused because every company on the planet says, says there's zero trust. So let me just simplify what this means. Uh, in the past, uh, we were given uh, an ID and a password. And uh, once it was, it was it, many people use the, the, the building as an example, the, the office, the headquarters. I got a badge, I got a physical badge that I can place on a card reader and I get in. Now I can go anywhere in the building, anywhere in the building. I got past the front door. That's traditional. That's implicit trust, implicit trust, as opposed to explicit trust or zero trust. So today, I'm not only going to allow you in the building because you, you, you got past the badge reader, I'm going to escort you for the purpose of your visit. I'm going to escort you to the third floor and to room 101. And that's all you're going to be able to do. That's what zero trust is all about, is you have an explicit purpose. Now, Zscaler works with uh, uh, two partners, very significant partners. Okta is identity management. Yes, I'm familiar with that. And identity management will put me in there. I am a payroll clerk and I have responsibilities to process this transaction and nothing else, Mm -hmm. nothing else. So combining identity management with uh, Zscaler uh, allows you to use the network to test me as a payroll clerk to take me to that specific program to do that transaction. Explicit, explicit, explicit. The other company is CrowdStrike, the device that I'm using. The device that I'm using is also controlled. So the identity, the device, and the network adopts zero trust. You will only be allowed to do one thing that you're paid to do, only one thing. And you don't know, you no longer have the ability to go everywhere. Now, we, we in the past have survived, but now the insider threat is starting to cause some problems for us. Not only are there nation states, not only are there domestic terrorists, but there's also the insider threat. So we've got to be careful with how much authority we grant every single person working in the organization. Hmm. So they're still evaluating Jack's uh, 
uh, credentials and his responsibilities and the latitude that he had. So zero trust is all about explicit, explicit trust, explicit authorizations to do the only things that we're paying you to do versus implicit trust, where we gave you an ID and a password, you can do whatever you want, anywhere, any organization, any business unit, you got past the front door. Yeah. And a lot of parts of leadership, you need to trust and you need to have implicit trust because it helps you get more creativity, more innovation. Uh, It builds engagement and commitment. But the flip side of it is it doesn't necessarily roll that well in all functions, certainly not in security. Yeah, Ben, I think we can give people freedom, but within boundaries. If, if it's a research organization, we can give them that kind of freedom, but we will be explicitly and, and, and knowing, knowing everything that possibly could go wrong, we trust that, that freedom and we've, we've chartered them with doing that responsibility. But it's limited, very limited to a few. Mm-hmm. When's the time you had an unexpected twist or failure in your career? And how did it lead to your growth or success on that? <laughs> I, I've uh, been over my career. I've lost my job three times and uh, through, through circumstances where a change in leadership, uh, uh, just uh, things that have happened. I wouldn't be where I am today had I not been terminated at those three occasions. So I look back at it as the day it happened, I was worried, but uh, I quickly found another job and another career just to continue to build on my career. But uh had I, had I not done that, I probably would still be working in the same company. Mm. So I look, I, look, I look forward to these, uh, quote, catastrophic events in my life for meaning and purpose. And then I turn them into, uh, as people say, into, into lemonade and make sure that uh, my career continues in servicing others. I, I am very uh, much a proponent of servant leadership, and I'm there to uh, service the organization up and down uh, to the top of the pyramid, to the bottom of the, of the staff that people work with, work together. We connect all the dots. We're having a very successful day. So in those moments of, you know, when you face this whole deal about you know, losing your job, is you were looking for meaning and purpose in those moments, or what was the thing that helped you sort of get through that and, until you found the new opportunity? Tomorrow will be better. Hmm. All right. Well, Man, David, this has been a really cool and interesting interview. What's your parting thought for our listeners today? I would suggest that uh, I've learned uh, over the many years, and I think uh, the COVID has uh, underscored the importance of work-life balance, Hmm. work-life balance, and remote work is really contaminating that because you never leave work if you're working from home. And you've got to be able to draw some boundaries and understand the importance of your spouse and your spouse may be working and going through the same issues, working from home and you need to work with your kids who may be doing e-learning and working and, and learning from home too. You're all under with, under the same roof. So I think you, uh, you know, the COVID has really uh, uh, was a bad episode for this country, but I think we learned so much and we should never forget the lessons that were learned in there. Work-life balance is very important for successful. David, thank you for coming on. All right, Ben. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer 
before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.